0: The podcast will begin after this message.
1: Today's episode is presented by Corteva AgriScience. Our company is committed to supporting and engaging women in agriculture across the globe. To further understand the current status of women farmers around the world and to create a baseline from which we can measure growth in the future, we have commissioned an important study to look at the lives and concerns of women in agriculture in 17 countries across five regions of the world. Europe has been represented with five countries, Germany, France, Italy, Spain, and the UK. Learn more about the study and our company's commitment at www.corteva.com.
0: Hey everyone, welcome back to EU Confidential. I'm your host, Ryan Heath, the political editor at Politico Europe, and you're listening to the number one EU politics podcast. Welcome to a non-summit safe space. You won't hear us talking about events that start without new ideas and end in deadlock on this podcast. Instead, we're going to talk about people trying to build positive communities. In this episode, we speak to Martin Beaumere. He runs the youth wing of Emmanuel Macron's movement in France. He's working to build a community of young voters with eight political parties from across the political spectrum helping him out. Then I speak to Bill Gates, the ideas machine and philanthropist, who, along with Melinda Gates, wants to keep recent success in improving the world's health and living conditions away from party politicking. The podcast panel runs with the theme and compares the world views of Gates and those of the nationalists who are winning support across Europe. We put that in the context of a recent EU-wide survey about attitudes to the EU. First up, a five-minute interview with Martin Beaumont. Joining me now on EU Confidential is Martin Beaumert, who is the president of Jeune Avec Macron, the youth movement of the En Marche movement in France that took France by storm all the way to the Elysee Palace in 2017. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you for welcoming me also here. You are launching a new survey of young Europeans. Of what we call the uh, Euro-
2: the Young European Survey, which is an initiative that we are leading with uh, eight European youth organisation across europe and the idea really is to go back to what democracy is you know asking people what is their opinion on europe what is working well what is not working well and then from that start working together on what are our core values what do we want to defend for the next uh, european election that's very important for us to go back to the roots of democracy
0: it sounds very idealistic but it's also a bit of the playbook that you used in France, where Absol- people were very sceptical that this would go anywhere, that uh, Macron had substance or a real movement behind him. So how was the 2019 European election plan comparing to what you were doing back in France?
2: I think what we are doing is a little bit what all political movements should be doing at some point. They should go back to the citizens, because the Euroscepticism skepticism that we start seeing in a lot of regions in Europe, one of the root causes of that is probably that we have forgotten to ask people what do they think because they are the center of the democracy. We knocked again on more than 200,000 doors in France, ask the opinion of people on Europe, and we discovered things about French people. They really want, like, more than 80% of them, they want to fight for Europe. They believe in the European project, but in the same time, they are also saying that the current Europe is drifting from the core values that were there at the beginning. So the idea is to keep doing that, now focus on youth because we believe that our generation should be able to have a strong say in those european elections we have a lot of institutions doing that also the european news forum is doing that but we want to do that as political movements being able to bring to the table some key ideas that we want to hold Mm -hmm. and i'm already sure that there are some key topics that are at the forefront of what young people are are thinking especially climate change Mm -hmm. fight against corruption those are key topics and is that is that
0: the goal policy change or is it that you want to get MEPs into the European Parliament so that there is a younger different set of people voting? Or, or maybe you're trying to do both. It,
2: it's, it's both. I think we need, first of all, to offer a new project for Europe. People are a little bit skeptical now. You can see also in Brussels, the atmosphere is a little bit gloomy, you know. We lost this enthusiasm about Europe. So we want to give that back.
0: Mm-hmm. And you uh, think that's more legitimate than an idea like the Spitzen candidates?
2: Absolutely. The Spitzen and is, again, we're going to have the current people who are probably massively change in the next European elections. We are basically selecting who's going to be the next president of the commission. So that's the opposite of what we want. That's why we are bringing forward this idea of a team of people running. So we identify them. And at some point, the new parliament will be choosing basically the new president of the commission. And we expect that it will be someone able to gather a majority in the parliament in order to make changes. And maybe it's going to go a little bit beyond the groups that are going to exist post-elections in 19. So that's a lot of questions, but we want to try to do things differently. And we've seen the 2014 Spins and Coindad process as designated Mr. Juncker, and I don't know if the results at the expectation of the commission five years ago, but there is a lot of things on the agenda that have not been delivered. We don't need to have 500 pages of documents asking the program because we are never going to deliver that. We know that from a fact. Uh, look at and the commission today very the program they to had
0: vault europa for example that's another new movement that started but they have very detailed uh, abso-
2: absolutely well we are closing what we believe on the diagnosis of europe and what we want for europe with vault we just have a very different way of doing things they've published a 200 pages document and then from that they're going to do their national documents we do the opposite we start from the bottom we go ask citizens not only our members, but average young people anywhere in, in all the places especially where people are not voting
0: so i'm going to let people know where they can fill out the survey now if you go to bit.ly forward slash you can fill out this young european survey and the results will be announced on the 8th of november so martin beaumair thank you so much for joining us on eu confidential
2: thank you very much Ren.
0: next up i speak to bill gates First known as the Microsoft co-founder, his business partner Paul Allen sadly passed away earlier this week, then as the richest man in the world, and now he's better known as the co-founder of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. As you'd expect, the insights are fascinating. For example, he points out that by not spending so much on defence, Europeans have created space in their national budgets to make them the world's aid superpower. That's also a responsibility EU countries have to wear when they think about tweaking those national and EU budgets just as the United States wears the responsibility of being the world's police force. Be warned, Mr Gates likes his acronyms. When you hear him mention the MFF, that's the EU's seven-year budget, or multi-annual financial framework. When you hear SDGs, that's the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. Bill Gates, thanks for joining us on EU Confidential and talking to Politico. You're at the end of a really punishing week in Brussels and the rest of Europe. It's been back-to-back meetings. How are you feeling? Are you thinking that there's the right level of engagement from the EU and the national governments on where they're going to be investing their development budgets?
3: Yeah, I started the week in uh, Berlin where the foundation had a grand challenges meeting, which is about health innovation, and then the World Health Summit. And we kind of brought those two meetings together and had people like Chancellor Merkel, Prime Minister Solberg, Dr. Tedros, the head of WHO, you know, all coming together talking about, okay, how do we improve health, which is the big focus of the foundation. I came to Brussels yesterday about noon, and here it's an opportunity to understand where the the new MFF is going. Obviously, the parts of that that matter a great deal to our foundation are the research part, uh, where we get as much of that as we can to work on things like malaria or TB, and then the uh, overseas development assistance, all the stuff under heading six, where if you count the union plus the countries, over 60% of aid that's given across all areas, including health, comes from Europe. And so having Europe maintain this leadership, the generosity, you know, the example, it's super important. It helps us as we're going back to the US and still maintaining a bipartisan coalition that how much of it is Africa focused, how much of it can we get into what we call long-term capital, which is the education and health as opposed to more short-term things. We had a couple of announcements here One was a non-foundation thing because it's about energy investing, where Commissioner Moedas... And that's uh, the energy breakthrough, this 100 million
0: euro investment. Exactly.
3: So we had that. And then we also today had the announcement where we're using European investment bank money and money from the foundation to fund companies to go in and do high-quality diagnostics in African countries. Mm
0: -hmm. You've brought... uh, innovation and data-driven approach. Your work is leading to institutions like the EU getting more involved in these leveraged finance models so that their euros and their dollars go further when they invest here. Is that the key to winning that argument around generosity now, that the political environment is a bit tougher where you have people who are saying, hey, I want to look after my backyard. I'm not interested in what you have to say about Africa. It's Hungary first or it's Poland
3: first. well, the aid trends have been mostly positive. The aid budgets didn't count too much on you know Italy, which has had fiscal difficulties, or you know, Spain. We hope they come back because they did some aid giving and you know, we'll see. But all the big countries and the traditionally super generous countries, Netherlands, Norway, Sweden, they've been really good and You know, our feeling is we're spending money in a smarter way. So the grant money is what's really proven out and uh, and maturing. This idea of where you take investment capital and you try to get a return, there are some areas where that'll work. But in these very poor countries, when you're talking about primary health care, there are things that at most they'll take a World Bank Ida loan, which is a very concessional or they'll take grants. They can't borrow money on commercial terms to run a primary health care system. So we have to be creative. The first one is this diagnostic things where there could be a revenue stream from both the government and the middle class in that country. A lot of our agricultural things we think we can put into that format. But how much money for sub-Saharan Africa can be put into that format, I would say it's still up in the air these institutions are really glad that we're partnering with them to prove that the Guarantee Fund can be helpful. But the jury's still out on both the scale and the impact of that type of investing. Yeah,
0: maybe I wanted to dive into a bit of the demographics of Africa now, because it always struck me that you know most people in this town at least would agree that you're smart, you're doing good work, and that we have to get smarter about how we do these things. Uh, but then there are some people who don't really accept the fact that Africa is rising at the pace and the the scale that it's going to rise at. That okay, poverty is not inevitable, birth rates are not strictly inevitable, but but Africa is going to be very populous and very rich, and it's right on Europe's doorstep. So there is this massive opportunity there, and then also there is a set of challenges to manage because not everyone is going to want to stay there, and with climate migration issues, not everyone's going to be able to stay there. How are you dealing with those sort of realities? How do you bring those facts to the table to to inform the discussions?
3: Well, the demography of the world is something that I think it's worth constantly reminding people of. Uh, Hans Rolzing did so in his book Factfulness, and I, you know, sent that to tons of people. Actually, Chancellor Merkel had clearly read the thing and was recommending it to other people. So, you know, although. Hans isn't with us anymore. His message about, okay, pay attention to these basic facts and the incredible progress we've made, you know, that is very, very helpful. Africa is the last place where you have very high population growth. I mean, there's a few places like Yemen, Afghanistan, but the big countries in Asia, you know, China is now falling population and none of the big countries are at these high rates of growth. So, births in Asia will actually be flat to slightly down during this century. The only place where birth goes up are in Africa. And it's one of these awful things where the worse we do on health, the more the birth rate stays high. And so the numbers are kind of mind blowing. You know, just Nigeria alone, it's 200 million now, it'll be 400 million on present trends, it'll get to 800 million. And so you think, okay, how are you feeding? How are you, you know, all the young men, do they have a sense of positive opportunity or do some of them join Boko Haram or its future equivalent? So yes, the numbers in sub-Saharan Africa are daunting. Europe really has a dual set of goals. One goal is to avoid uncontrolled migration. In the short term, pragmatically, that means having relationships with Northern African countries, so that they're not a source of uncontrolled migration. Those countries are more middle income, not high population growth, not affected by huge infectious disease. So our foundation doesn't bring any value added to that dialogue with Northern Africa, which is a fine discussion, yeah. you know. Nobody, you're more sub-Saharan, yeah, that's what nobody's talking. a fan of uncontrolled migration. Now in the long run, if you want to avoid wars, if you want to avoid pandemics, then the key is Sub-Saharan Africa. And that is not about short-term job training programs or new border posts. That's about basic human capital investments. It's about quality of governance. You know, it really hangs in the balance. Will these countries be constantly unstable or not? We have Ethiopia and Rwanda, who've set a fantastic example, even though they were extremely poor, of fixing the health and education systems. You know, then we have places like D DRC, where the government's capacity is so limited that a lot of the execution gets done through NGO groups, which in the long run is not the right answer. Mm-hmm. But, you know, we need to get the vaccines out and keep Ebola down and polio and all these things.
0: And I guess that is also a global effort. And you've got this goalkeepers report that the foundation puts out to keep an eye on the global sustainable development goals and how everyone's doing you know when you think beyond Europe how do you see the world pulling together to address these challenges
3: you know most people on the street have never heard of the SDGs young people on the other hand you say to them should we help out Africa should we try and deal with these extreme problems including all the disease they get very engaged now the best thing is to actually have them go there the number of people who end up getting to do that is small enough that our issues, particularly if they're short-term problems, they can get off the agenda quite easily.
0: Now, speaking of short versus long-term, you were down at the European Parliament earlier this week, and it was striking just how many people packed into the room. And I wanted to get maybe a bit of your take on what it is about your work and your thinking that will pack out a room like that.
3: Well, I don't get to Brussels very often, and you know i can't tell you for sure who was in the room you know maybe it was people who really hate what we do and they came to you know arm themselves with arguments against us you know we didn't take a vote where everybody said hallelujah although i did sense you know positive interest and engagement and development issues by most of the people who were there and that's a good sign you know remember development you know cutting child to deaths in half this is a a morally important incredibly successful area. And I'm always surprised, you know, if you announce a new software product, it's easier to get attention than a a new vaccine. You know, we've tried to bring some more of that sophisticated communication. That's why we do the report. You know, if you go to our goalkeepers event, you know, our visuals are as good as any commercial company's visuals are. And we're trying to be creative. You know, we have this thing called mosquito week that, you know, my website is, you know, reminding people about the burden of those diseases and And
0: you're the you're the good news i don't know why i forgot that part you know we're in a world of bad news these days very often and a lot of what you're doing is working or a lot of the areas that you're working in you know if we're cutting child mortality by half well you know that is better news than being stuck in a political gridlock isn't it
3: yeah and, and you know people are looking for consistency they're looking for actors who their motivation is clear their willingness to stick to a problem is clear, their willingness to say, hey, polio's not done, this has turned out to be harder than we expected. Working in Nigeria is not easy. Here's how we're going about trying to deal with some of those problems. Because getting extreme poverty down in Africa is not going to be anywhere as easy as it was in the big wave, the China wave and, and the India wave. It is just really difficult. When I looked at the you know, 90% of extreme poverty in Africa. Even I, who know these numbers, that's, like, amazing. Or you look at the population of DRC, it's just, oh, my God, you know, what does agriculture look like under that scenario? What does education
0: look like? There's a lot of people who would say, "Okay, I want these problems solved. I trust Bill Gates, but I'm not Bill Gates, so what am I supposed to do to contribute?
3: Well, ideally, the new MFF get concluded sometime next year and that even when the final compromises are all said and done like this initial proposal the research money will be going up a fair bit and the development aid money will be going up a fair bit you know those are two things europeans should be proud of they make a huge difference they help raise the equivalent money in other countries and it is a weird system that all the countries have to agree unanimously you know in the United States we can't agree a budget and we only have the Republicans and the Democrats and yet the percentage of time that we have a budget before the budget year starts is very small so when I see okay 27 people and the heterogeneity across the 27 is probably greater today you know how does Poland look at it how does Italy look at it how does Sweden look at it, you know, these are vastly different points of view in certain ways, and that's why it's been interesting for me to meet with some of the leaders and see how they look at it. What was interesting, they all agreed that some compromise will be reached. There wasn't one of them saying, well, if they don't, you know, take care of me on my extreme thing, then You know, I'm going to mess the whole thing up. You know,
0: Poland was my surprise. I was interviewing Morawiecki, the prime minister, and I thought he would have been much more strong borders, keep them out in their rhetoric. And he was like, I don't necessarily want an influx in my country, but I need to invest in Africa. So I'm willing to write a check. And I was like, wow, that I was surprised
3: at his openness there. Yeah, I mean, there's always this you know, short-term angst versus these long-term investments. And the very fact they do it as a seven-year framework is kind of an amazing thing. It creates predictability. So, you know, thank God for Europe. At least for the things we do, it's super necessary.
0: You were listening to Bill Gates. The podcast panel is next after this message.
1: A message from Corteva AgriScience. Corteva is committed to engaging with and supporting women in agriculture across the globe. Our study found that although women are overwhelmingly proud to be in agriculture, gender discrimination is perceived as widespread, with some variation among the regions, but at significant levels everywhere. 68% of women farmers in Europe think that gender discrimination is an issue in agricultural industry. Though the tendency is positive and there is less discrimination nowadays than 10 years ago. 67% of European women in agriculture participating in the survey think that the key area that would help remove the obstacles to equality is to raise the public's awareness of gender discrimination in farming and agriculture. We believe that Corteva Agriscience, the agriculture division of Dow DuPont, has an important role to play in accelerating the progress. We explore additional steps, including further research, direct action, and partner with governments, NGOs, and other groups to remove the barriers of gender inequality. Find out more about our commitment at www.corteva.com.
0: And now it's time to welcome back the podcast panel, the Brussels Brains Trust. Good morning, Lena.
4: Good morning, Ryan.
0: Good morning, Alva.
4: Good morning, guys.
0: Now, we are sitting here in the middle of the EU7 Summit week, and we don't give a damn. We're not going to talk about any of these summits because we're sick of them. Isn't that right?
5: Yeah, well, I think that's the conclusion from the leaders
4: as well. Yeah. We don't want any more summits until, until we have something to talk about. Even they were so bored and they finished on time and even before time that they went to have a beer in Grand Place, So that's exactly really that's good. Drastic.
0: That's leaders having a normal semi-balanced life. They're back down there again now. But Work-life Yeah. Balance. Anyway, the point is call us when you've got some Brexit progress and let's talk about something else. So one man who's been in town this week is Bill Gates. He's obviously got one worldview, and I was noticing that that obviously contrasts pretty heavily with people like Viktor Orban. Let's make him the head of the other worldview. So you've got this sort of generous, open way of trying to solve problems with innovation and technology, and then you've got a much more closed-down looking back to the past, protecting national identities, and, and you know, protecting what you've got rather than building something new sort of approach to the world. And so I know that's a bit of a multi-thread conversation, but Alva, you were listening to Gates. What was your take on him?
5: yeah I mean I also must confess that he pays my bills but I'm quite inspired by him in the he,
0: sense that he he funds some of yes, your work yes he, he funds yeah he,
5: he fu- well he directly funds my position so I know quite a lot about what he does but yesterday I went to the parliament to see him speaking and he was there with Federica Mogherini and I have to say I've never ever ever seen a room in the European parliament so packed and exa- that was exactly what Federica Mogherini said she said you know if I could have this kind of attendance at my speeches in Strasbourg that would be great he is really inspiring I think and he talked all about generosity you know European generosity and his generosity and what that means for the world and one of the things I think that is really interesting is he's really taken on climate change now so he was also here to launch an investment fund with the European Commission on it's called Breakthrough Energy and it's about bringing together innovators and funding innovation to tackle climate change in the wake of the IPCC report so yeah he has a very interesting but kind of traditional worldview in that you know he's a multi-billionaire and he sees that the world, we have so many problems and we can't do it by entrenching our views and yeah, looking inwards.
0: But I guess his view, Lena, is that you can solve problems if you have ideas. You know, you don't solve it with rhetoric, you don't solve it with tweets, you solve it with ideas.
4: Precisely, actually back in 2003, Mr. Gates came to my own country. Together with many world leaders, and they launched something called the Jordan Education Initiative. That after all these years, it is paying off. They renovated many schools in the south of Jordan, and they are replicating it in so many other, let's say, third countries in the Middle East, in Africa, in Northern Africa. So, uh, this is his uh, sense of philanthropist, and his sense of humanity, and his sense of like, Let's put our values as a human beyond our political visions or him and his wife. Let's not forget as well, she has a great role in, in shaping the foundation in reaching out to the African continent and to make sure that she's always carrying this message around the world with her.
0: Let's bring in the Viktor Orban worldview now. Or Actually, there's two different worldviews. So Viktor Orban would say, you know, it's not my job to fund Africa I don't want to enable more people to be able to come into Europe, so actually let them sort themselves out. Whereas someone like Morawiecki, the Prime Minister of Poland, I think he would take a slightly different view, where he would say, I don't want these people in my country, but I recognize that we need to support them, and if I have to pay some money to keep them out, you know, he pay into things like those development funds to keep people in Africa.
5: Yeah, I think there's this whole conversation as well happening in Europe about what's the relationship with Africa look like in the future. And this was one of Juncker's big plans that he launched in the State of the Union. He said Africa doesn't need charity. Africa needs better partnership and Africa needs investment. But the truth is Africa also needs development corporation. And I think that people like Bill Gates, they see that you cannot really spur on economic growth without tackling some social issues like Mm. health, education, social protection. That's what we had in Europe. That's why we developed so quickly. And if you look to Europe and you look to the social model, you see that the social model is totally linked to our economic growth. And I think people like him see that. And Viktor Orban, who is a populist, just talks a little bit more in black and white and a little bit siloed as well. So I think when we look to Africa, we don't just talk about investment, we have to talk about development corporation as one of the tools in the toolbox.
0: And is there any way around the fact that someone like Viktor Orban is very successful in demonizing a figure like George Soros, people like Bill Gates, you know, as un-Hungarian or people who don't understand the needs of Hungarians. So if you, if you run an environment in your country where most of the media is friendly or owned by your friends, and you've built up a majority in parliament, a solid majority in parliament, is there anything we can do as outsiders to inject more facts into the discussion? Or as Democrats, do we have to stand on the sidelines and say Hungarians need to reach their own conclusions? It's not for us to inject our views about Bill Gates onto them.
4: Well, I think it's always important to keep the dialogue going and not to give up leaders or so-called leaders as Mr. Orban. They will go sooner or later. They don't last. Uh, they would have their era, and it's a historical fact. We've always had some people like him. But the European project is so strong, and the European values, I believe, it's so strong. And now with all the external threats and with the relationship with the U.S. precisely, I think with the Brexit as well, I think more the union is in a period of reevaluating how we can keep this unity, how we can keep the faith, in communicating our values. And this will always be by open doors and that's by always having dialogues with the Hungarians and with other. Populism is going to be all over if we look at as well Latin America. I think one of the smart
5: things about Viktor Orban is that he's attacking civil society at the moment and that is a way of changing public opinion. You know, civil society communicates around a more broad and a progressive approach to how you do things. And he has directly now directly said to the european union this week ministers of foreign affairs met in luxembourg and his suggestion was through his minister of foreign affairs that the eu should no longer fund ngos that threaten in quotation marks the sovereignty of neighboring countries and that sees him very much aligned with very scary liberal forces in the world so for example egypt would also crack down on civil society we know that there's crackdowns across Mm. the middle east And that, he's importing that into Europe. He's importing that kind of, we only want one view, and that's our view. And anybody else who says otherwise, particularly if they're funded from abroad, needs to go.
0: Are there any learnings for civil society? Because civil society is a lovely label. It sounds great, but we know a lot of organizations who work in that sector. They have fairly left-wing views of the world. We know he's a right-wing leader. At some level, isn't he just trying to get rid of his opposition? So, you know, he's targeting something that should be broad based, but sometimes isn't broad based. So is he actually just cleverly pinning down a civil society that's become a bit too narrow and a bit too left wing in its approaches?
4: Absolutely, because he doesn't want, as you just said, any opposition. And uh, w- we have lived that in other parts of the Middle East, as you mentioned, Alva. And uh, we were hoping with the Arab Spring things change. On the contrary, uh, they are even more pressured, put into little cubes. But this, the system is different. There, there is no Europe to protect. There is no unity. So I still believe the people will come back to Europe. It is more a winner card. You oh, know well, what Hungarians I mean.
0: still support the EU. We look at this Eurobarometer that, that came out this week. Hungarians don't want to leave the EU. They're not saying that. Mm. And maybe it's that civil society just looks left-wing because so many leaders have become so nationalist and so right-wing in their approaches. Maybe civil society didn't move at all. They just look more left-wing in comparison though.
5: Civil society is super broad. It can be a little NGO working for people with disabilities in rural or local areas, all the way up to organisations like Amnesty or Human Rights Watch. So, yeah, I think that definitely they get more media. But the idea that all civil society is bad or has even holds really liberal values is not true. It's just that very big ones do and the ones that get in the press do. But if we start taking this weird approach to all civil society and and banning civil society organizations from getting any money from people like Bill Gates or George Soros, We are actually hamstringing ourselves because lots of NGOs do things that are totally not against the government. In fact, they are helping people really in places where they don't have the ability to provide services, Mm -hmm. even though they should. So, you know, civil
0: society steps in where governments Governments fail fail sometimes.
5: Exactly. And I think that is also a threat to governments. You know, they don't want civil society saying, here, look, we're doing this. We shouldn't be doing it. The government should be doing it. So it it also, it shines a, a mirror. And I think that's one of the most important things about civil society. The idea that we're just leaving it up to Hungarians, I don't think it's our place But civil society in Hungary, absolutely, why not? They're talking to Hungarians in Hungarian. They are Hungarian a lot of the time. I I, I don't understand what's wrong with that.
0: Good. That's what we've got to do. We've got to stay positive. Whatever Europe we are going to build, it requires people with ideas and positivity. So, Lina, Alva, thanks so much for joining us once again. It's a pleasure. Now, if you haven't joined the EU confidential community already, we would love to sign you up officially. Go to politico.eu forward slash registration. That means you'll be sent the podcast each week and invitations to any podcast-related event. Thanks so much for listening. As always, podcasting is a team effort, so thanks to Weidong Lin, Andrew Gray, and Anja Buntka.